Hello, everyone. A very quick one from me. It would be a massive help to us with our ambition to help as many recruiters as possible achieve their goals and also inspire the next generation to choose recruitment as a career if you hit that follow and subscribe button. If you're someone that prefers to learn in a visual way, we've also recently invested a lot in our video podcast experience. So in the show notes, you'll always be able to find the link to watch the video on our YouTube channel and make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, Hisham Aziz, and on this week's episode, I sat down with Simon Brown. Simon's been on an interesting journey these last six to nine months. He sold his recruitment business. He's then joined the company that bought his business and more recently became the managing director of Digital Gurus. So in this conversation, we have a really honest and frank conversation around how he got to that point and most of all, the experience. How did he build a £1 million business without making a single business development call? Don't worry, I'll really get him to explain how he did that. How did he come to the decision to sell the business? How did he get it over the line? How did he structure the deal? How did he deal with the impact for those that worked for his organization when he never initially planned to sell the company? And these past six months, now he's joined the business, now he's got the sale through. How has it actually turned out? How does it feel to now have sold your business? We discuss all, he shares all, some really great insights in this conversation for any aspiring recruitment entrepreneur who wants to exit or sell their business one day. Enjoy the episode. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy Friday. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to timestamp this, but I've just timestamped it. <laughs> happy right. Recruitment Friday. No, I appreciate you jumping in. Obviously, I had someone let me down. And I know that, you know, when I saw what happened with your business, I messaged and I was like, mate, yeah. we have to get you on the pod to talk about this at the appropriate time. So it sort of worked out this way. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to breaking this down with you. And I thought, let, let's just get straight into it for people listening. Yeah. So obviously, it's been an interesting period for you because obviously, when you came on the podcast last, you was on the journey of building your startup, yeah, building definitely. Digital 51. Yeah. And then in January of this year, it was acquired by the Rethink Group. Yeah. And I think today what we're going to do is focus and talk about you know, what did Digital 51 look like to be even in a conversation of being acquired? How did you get there? What was that experience like? And then we'll then talk about, you know, what the journey has been like actually on the other side. I know we're early on on that journey, but still I think a lot of people are told this is, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is, you know, what's going to happen when we do this. And then you're now in in the thick of it six months in, so we're going to talk about that. So why don't we just start then with, you know, Digital 51. What did that... Obviously, I made some notes, but why don't we start with like, when did the sort of conversations start or when did Simon initially have some of these ideas of, I actually might sell my business, which had been going for, you know, 18 months, which isn't a very long time. Mm -hmm. When did that start happening for you? It did happen around the 18 month mark. So the plan was never to sell. The plan was to drive for 10 years to build a employee owned business 
and essentially step away at the 10-year mark. So that that was the original plan. There's no denying it. First 18 months, in some respects, went better than I expected. Financially, performance was superb. The impact and the approach and the style and all of that was brilliant on, on the markets that we were going after. So there was lots of positives in some respects. However, we were struggling to grow. I was struggling to grow the business and we needed to grow at a faster rate of heads in the business than I was able to financially drive through cash flow. Bearing in mind, completely self-funded, completely privately owned by myself and therefore there just wasn't able to grow in that way. So I started to think about investment at that point, bank loan, investor, putting my own more of my own money in, releasing shares. I started to think about how can I raise money? So at that point, we'd gone from five to eight and we'd hired in ones and twos or ones. And then a couple of people hadn't worked out. And we'd rehired from that side. I wanted to grow at 10. So therefore do it in a chunk of five and then another chunk of five. And that required investment. So I went to my accountant, first things first, what can I get from the bank? What can I leverage, you know, based on my accounts are in a good perspective, you know, in a good spot. They offered me some money from there, which was interesting, but that's bank money. So it didn't come with any upside. It was just, here's your cash, away you go. What I thought is if I got some investment from someone in our industry, I might also gain from that support for me. Mm. It is lonely. I was... I was lonely. Maybe an investor would be someone to bounce off, someone to talk to. I had a non-exec, but that wasn't necessarily driving the way I wanted the outcomes to for me. So so I, I, I then started to just talk to people in my network in the sense of if I was looking to raise funds to release anything between 5 and 10% of Digital 51, would you be interested? Mm. And that was that happened at the end of summer 22. Okay. Uh, so really bang on the 18 month mark. And that's where the conversation started around what the business looked like, what the value of the business was, because you had to have to know all of that information to ask people to invest money. And then you sit opposite people and you start talking about it. And it went from there. Okay, and no, I appreciate that. So I want to ask you to break down what the business looked like when it got acquired, because I think that'll yeah. be really interesting for people because you've you've achieved something. I know there's, you know, you're really excited about what's to come, but ultimately you've achieved a business event that a lot of recruitment business owners, you know, really aim for at some point. And a lot of people don't get there and and you managed to, you know, get that over the line and and achieve that. But I think it's probably worth noting and we'll come back to this, but obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but you wanted to grow in two chunks of five because your model wasn't the typical contingent model. It was a talent partnership model. Yeah. So what you were seeing is, you know, with you sharing me is like you was getting in, you know, you was getting in the rooms with some great businesses. Yeah. They bought into the way that you're doing it, but you knew if you committed to a hiring project of 30, which what the opportunity was, there's no fucking way you're going to deliver that or you wouldn't be able to deliver the service that you wanted to. So that was obviously a bottleneck, which is why he was like, hang on a minute, I can get in these rooms. We just need more, you know, more power inside our four walls to be able to deliver on these projects that I know that we can get. Yeah. Like on the money, I was, you know, really lucky myself and Adrienne who were leading the business from the front, natural, better with clients, love the market, love business development, love getting out, seeing people. I went to see one of the largest privately owned creative comms agencies in London, which was like totally my wheelhouse. I love that industry space. And they were, wanted to do a an intake for 25 account managers. It was like, this was, this was early 22. 
and the market in that creative comm space was booming. There was a huge demand for account managers because of suppressed hiring in the past two years. And I can remember getting the train home thinking, fuck, this is so exciting. I would love to work with this brand, but if they give me this project, how the fuck am I going to deliver it? Pardon my French, you know, what am I going to do? Because we didn't have the resource in place. And then we, just to be honest, that didn't come off. And do you know when I was, I was worried that early in the year, that didn't come off. And there was a bit of me that was relieved it didn't come off, mm. which is insane, right? And then AD and I pitched for another piece of business, which was European business. And being honest, we sort of tanked on it a little bit. We, we didn't nail it at the end. But again, what they were talking about, I was like, we are really... Because we were 100% fill rate, right? On everything we got, we filled every single opportunity that didn't get pulled by a client because we were that partnership model. So you have to know if you're in the room with these people, we're going to deliver. Mm. And we were getting close on the res from the resource side. And I wanted a bit more slack in there, which is why I wanted to grow a bit quicker. Also, the market was insane for salaries at that moment in time. So I knew I was going to have to get people without, you know, full-blown recruitment experience and take them on that journey. And we were fine with that. But again, that means you unfortunately probably have got a higher churn rate if you're going to churn you know, 30% of, of that, then you're going to hire 10 and lose three, possibly four. So it was sort of accounting for those types of things. That was the demand. Or that was my thinking. Yeah. So why don't you just very quickly, just mm -hmm. like high level, explain yeah. what a talent partnership product looked like yeah. and felt like, just because I feel like this might be, you know, quite important when we're talking about the acquisition, because that might have made you actually stand out above, you know, the other recruitment owners that say, I want some investment, I want to grow my business. I feel like you can tell us in a sec, but... Just describe to us what is a talent partnership model? What, how does that work and yeah. operate? What does that look like? Well, it, it is ultimately as well why it became more attractive from, a, from an acquisition yeah. perspective because ultimately we could plug in our offering to someone else's solution, mm. which is what ended up happening with Rethink. So if you think about contingent recruitment, I need to hire this. Can you get it for me? Fill that seat. That's like tried and tested and that's where recruitment came from, right? And then you've got the full outsource model where... You know, you sign an RPO contract for one, two, three, four, five years um, and you go down that route. We sat right in the middle of that. So not necessarily embedded. So we weren't embedded on client sites or what have you, but we would take projects of like five hires and above where a client, you know, you've got to think about our target audience was two areas. It was either the creative space or it was scaling startups in the tech space. And you want to grow from, you want to add five to 15 hires, say in the next six to nine months in product, creative tech. You don't want to build your own in-house talent team. You don't want a contingent recruiter because they don't understand you enough. They're not, you know, immersed in your culture. Then we had a financial offering around that where the partner would, would pay us a monthly fee and we would deliver outcomes against it from that perspective. So we were, we weren't physically embedded as in we didn't sit on their sites, but we were embedded in what they were trying to achieve. And we delivered our solutions as opposed to, we will fill these roles for you. We were delivering outcomes for them from that side. So the thinking behind it was one fast growth coming out of COVID, huge demand for PERM. And from a business ownership perspective, it was reoccurring PERM revenue, reoccurring PERM rev. Whereas the historic problems in the perm market are it's spiky. Mm. You know, you have a brilliant month, then you've got to rebuild and you have a dreadful month. And what this allowed us to do was essentially, we didn't do contracts, so it allowed us to have reoccurring perm and grow in a slightly different way. And also, I just believed that there was a hole in the market mm. between 
full outsource and contingent. And a lot of contingent recruiters weren't really looking for this because their desks were hot because of the state yeah, yeah, of the market. Trying to at that deal time. With the job flow. Yeah. So j- j- just quickly, if you don't mind, yeah. again, we're going to try and make this as tangible as possible for people. Let's just break down what a like minimum deal looked like. So what yeah. was like the minimum? So let's say, you know, I was your target client yeah. and I fit the five, five over the next six months. I knew that I wanted to get two developers in that time, mm-hmm. Simon. I wanted to, I needed a product person because of that. And then I needed two creative talent. Firstly, what in and around would be the minimum, you know, monthly current revenue that you'd end up agreeing with me. Yeah. And then two, what did those deliverables look like that were expected and you agreed to? Because I think that'd be helpful for people. Well, I will answer that, but also we had a partnership approach to everything. So we would do a partnership for one hire, but that partnership was called the key hire program or the guaranteed, the eight week guarantee. So we had partners who came to us to say, we need to hire this one person, head of product, Mm. head of development, head of client services in the creative space. And we would partner with them on that. So we would guarantee to get that job to offer within eight weeks. Loads of people would call that historically a retainer, but in a retainer, you lose your, you pay your retainer and if the agency Mm. doesn't fill it, you lose it or it gets spun onto something else. We had a partnership offering there for one role, which was you pay us half up front. If we don't get it to offer by the end of the eighth week, then we give you that half back. Now we never had to do that, which meant that we could offer, for us, partnership wasn't based on a minimum number of roles or hires okay. or what have you. The cheapest ever one we did, I don't mind sharing, was four and a half grand a month. Okay. Um, and that was in a creative space. And that was with a client who had done 10 hires with us on a six project and then a four project. And then they wanted to do something over a longer period of time. And we did a commercial deal that was four and a half thousand pounds a month for okay. them. That was our cheapest one that we ever did. That was the biggest I, one you ever did. I, I was going to say, I won't share our biggest one. Ever did, but, it was, but it was good. It was a good deal. Um, what, what, over what, 10? What, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So over 10, yeah. I think the benefit of the biggest deal we ever did the benefit with it was it was a six month deal yeah paying x amount a month say 25 grand if you wanted to use that number a okay. month over a six month period and the partner needed to hire a, a number of people during that time and then halfway through that pro uh, that project they didn't need to hire those people anymore because of a pivot in their business but they still paid the rest of the partnership so in the partnership model if there's economies of scale for the hiring yeah. partner they get more than just, a, they get a help. We used to have a huge stack of data, insight, mm. market intel. We would help them with their recruitment process. We would do lots of things for them. But if you needed to, needed to hire 10 people and then you got to five and you didn't need to hire the other five, you still paid. Mm. So you still paid that monthly. So the reason that the, the big one was good was the truth be told, their business pivoted halfway through and they didn't need to hire. So for three months they paid us that partnership Fair. model, which is like commercially superb. But the flip side of it is if they had gone the full duration, then we would have made less revenue per hire, per than, hire than, yeah. a, than a contingent recruiter. And then, and just really quickly, typical deliverables, but besides having someone offer in eight weeks, what were the typical deliverables that you would say? And for that, every week we're going to have a check-in call. You're going to get an uh, insight into, you know, the amount of people that we've reached out to. What are some of the, the typical deliverables that you would say we would also give you this? This podcast is proudly sponsored by Sourcebreaker. And today I wanted to talk to you about sales opportunities and how Sourcebreaker can help. Because are you tired of the competition beating you to new sales opportunities? Do you want to make more placements from your existing resources? Who doesn't? 
Transform the way you work with Sourcebreaker. Revolutionizing recruitment with AI-powered technology, Sourcebreaker powers you with laser-accurate search results across all your sourcing platforms to build candidate pools filled with highly qualified individuals, all from one place, not from multiple tabs in different places. You will get perfect fit opportunities automatically tracking relevant vacancies and events in your market niche in real time and pre-built automations that constantly scope your markets to deliver high quality results at speeds your competitors simply can't match. Head over to sourcebreaker.com for more information. Back to the episode. Yeah, it, it's funny even being honest because you, you've got to think as well, this was the height of the market. Mm. So it was about outcomes in okay, terms so. of, it was about that. Right. So we had lots of metrics in there in terms of, we will provide you with data. We will provide you with salary benchmarking. We will provide you with, but really it was about delivery right. rules. And also certainly in the scale-ups because they were like, we, you know, it was about speed. They wanted people quickly. Okay, cool, fair. Right, so really useful context then. So I guess from what it says online, you can obviously fill in the gaps here. From what it says online, with the acquisition of your business by Rethink, at that time, the net fee income was 1.1 million. Mm-hmm. What was the EBIT? We were half. So at half. that point, we were running 50% drop through rate. So the plan was to build a million pound NFI business in the second year. So we would generate a million pounds worth of NFI, bearing in mind we're perm. So I wasn't like turnover was irrelevant. Mm-hmm. However, we fell short in that second year, which was a big sort of frustration. But the goal for the second year was to do a million quids worth of NFI and for costs or like nothing to ever get above 50%, 50%. was always the goal. Yeah. And then there's seven people at the point of sale, you said? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Okay, cool. So that's the business they bought. I think, why don't we, let's just break this down a bit. So in terms of, I think what you obviously shared with me on the prep to this, which I think would be an interesting place to start, was you said the conversation started around October. Yeah. The deal ended up actually happening going through on January. Yeah. So so these things can often take longer than people anticipate. Totally. But I think what you said where I want to start, obviously I'm not bothered about actual numbers, but I think what you said to me was, you said an initial number. Yeah. They did their due diligence. They're like, (laughs) yeah, nah, Simon, that's not happening. (laughs) And then you obviously got to a place. So I think what would be good is, what didn't stack up or after due diligence is good, Simon, look, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's there because yeah. of this reason. What, what did you, you know, put more value in? Yeah. But then when someone, you know, an actual acquirer looks at it and go, yeah, Simon, that, that's not as valuable as a thing. What were some of those things that maybe you misestimated? Let's start there. Yeah, it was funny because we were talking about 20% investment and we sort of, they were like for 20% investment and they were really happy to invest at that level and that was going well. And then these were happening over lunches and then in between one of the lunches we had a conversation was about, well, maybe we'd want to acquire all of it and we'd want you to come with it. And, you know, our business could, one, we've got an outsource business in Rethink, we've got agency businesses and digital gurus and infinite talent, but we've got this gap in the middle. And then also there's you yourself type thing. So would you be interested in all of it? And then I was also like, I'd started to think about it. So I was like, would you be interested in buying all of it? So they said, yeah. So we went back for a lunch and I'm sort of a no bullshit. I'm going to tell you my numbers first and then I'll follow it all up in black and white. And the person I met with was like, yeah, great, love it, whatever. So we went through the numbers Mm. and it just all went too well. He was like, yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. And I came out and I was like, shit, that went really well. So I then followed that up in email. Like, this is real now. I was like, this is real. This is what we went through. These are the numbers. I'm not going to lie. He replied to that email. I was like, yeah, all looks good. What we're going to do is we're going to get the finance people to check it out and we're going to do this, that and the other. 
And one, at that point, I hadn't even decided that I wanted to do a wholesale sell. However, I'd, the price that I'd put out there, yeah. the number... You was, was happy with. Yeah. Then I spoke to the finance guy. <laughs> then we met for lunch. And he was like, dude, this is not happening. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he was like, I get this partnership model and it's reoccurring rev and what have you, but it's a startup and it's perm. And yeah, let's like have a reality check. And it just shows, I guess, the value of a really good numbers person in any business that I guess... What was against me holding out to get what I wanted numbers wise once I'd started to really commit to a deal was if I'd have probably been a year or two further down the line, I would have had a lot more traction to demonstrate. Whereas mm -hmm. the reality is at this point, 18 months with a forward pipeline of about three months, we always had, there's a lot of risk in there for mm -hmm. a business. Don't get me wrong. I still think the brand was, is and was banging. So, you know, that was great, but there's only so much price you can put on what's, you know, goodwill and brand. So yeah, they started to pick at bits of the concepts behind my valuation, if you like. What were some of the um, key bits? Cause I think that because yeah, I no, think what's fine, useful yeah. for people is like, there's one thing going, yeah, I'm going to sell my recruitment business and you thinking like what it's worth, why it's worth this. Like, yeah. like you just said, like you put it all down, you had that really positive meeting and then you had a bit of a reality check with someone that, you know, gets in the nitty gritty. What were some of the, one of the two things that maybe in hindsight, like, you know what, maybe I did put too much value on that or maybe I did over egg that or maybe, yeah, that shouldn't fair, that shouldn't equate to X multiple. Like what were some of those things that maybe you thought would, yeah, what what did it, what were the fun, some of the one main one or two reality checks that you gave you? Yeah. Well, to be clear, I still think my price was right. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair. The, the biggest probably one of the biggest mistakes I made and one of the biggest thing. So I didn't take a salary for two years. So I hadn't factored. So when I looked at my profitability, mm. which was, I didn't take a salary for two years because I didn't want to take a salary for two years. I didn't take a salary for two years because it was part of my plan to build the business. I was actually always going to take a salary on, you know, month one of going into the third year. It was always planned that way. What I wanted to do was reinvest as much as humanly mm. possible. And I'd made some, I'd made plans going into the startup that financially would take care of me. So I didn't do that. I was just taking a dividend if and what, like as in at the end of each year, being completely candid, mm. my approach was like the day before Christmas Eve, I'm going to take out a dividend at that point mm. and that's me done for the first two years. I'd done all my planning around that. What that did is that inflates your EBITDA mm. because fundamentally you, you haven't got your own cost in that. So the very first thing that the that. CFO did was right your salary is this applied it straight to that number and that reduced the profitability of the business straight away mm. so i hadn't just looked that at them, what i'd done is i'd taken the ebitda of the business and I'd applied a multiple to it which is the way that you mm. should do a deal and i i looked at the last 12 months and i'd forecast the next 12 months and i was i was taking a bit of a gamble because i took the average of that whereas in reality you should probably take the backward looking number and, and yeah, it's from there. That's a great learning. But what I hadn't done was factored in my salary. Now, where I got, I would say where I got frustrated and where we disagreed is I still saw it as the true EBITDA of the business without my salary in because I'd made the decision not to take a salary. So it mm. wasn't, well, we need to put this amount in for you because that I hadn't needed or wanted to take that money for the and first that was two intentional. years. It wasn't like it wasn't, you weren't taking no. it because like you wasn't able to. No, the cash in the bank was never a problem. Mm. You know, we were... We were profitable in month one. We started trading on the 1st of March. We mm. made profit in month one. In the first nine months of the business, we only didn't make profit month by month once. 
So mm. cash in the bank was never an issue. Cash in the bank to the scale of go and hire 10 people was an issue, which is why we were looking in for investment. So I always felt that that was a bit of a bone of contention. However, I could understand the logic behind it. You're coming with the business. Because I think, again, when you go to do a deal, some people look to do a deal and exit. Mm. Some people look to do a deal and earn out. I was looking to do a deal and go with it because I was looking for the opportunity inside that organization, mm. which is why I got interested in a deal yeah. because I was interested in rethinking the group and the brands within it. So because of that, they'd started to factor my cost in a little bit more. But to be honest, I was probably a learning that I, whether I took a salary or not, I should have factored a salary into my PL going into year two because every time I, t- I sat with someone over finance, they were like, these numbers are brilliant. And then they were like, what are you getting from it? And then I couldn't show a salary and they were like, that's not right. So you, it caused me a problem. Yeah, I want to thank, I appreciate you sharing that. So I wanted to make sure that we went through how you then ended up structuring the deal, which mm-hmm. I think would be interesting for people. But, but just quickly, it just popped into my head as you were going through that. Obviously, like I said, I'm not bothered about understanding. We don't all need to know exactly the multiple that you got. I don't care about that. Yeah. But I think this is about what other people can learn. But I'm assuming you've, because on our preparation for this, you're now involved in potentially looking at other brands that you could acquire and you're maybe having a bit more of these conversations. Yeah. And as we discussed in our last podcast, like you've had a lot of exposure to these types of conversations because of yeah. your history. So my question is, from all these experiences so far, maybe more recent conversations and being in and around more people like this finance person, if I'm a recruitment owner and I mainly have a predominantly perm recruitment business, what do you think is a realistic multiple of my EBITDA? It's interesting. I was actually on a call yesterday. Exactly. You know, 60% contract v perm split business. Been going for half a dozen years looking at an event and sat on the call with a finance guy and they're looking at a three multiplier off that side. I think it's like a bit of a politician's answer that it will always depend on yeah. the business itself, the makeup, are the owners, are the founders, are they going with it, are they doing an earn out, who control, you know, in a contract heavy business, how much contract have you got with certain members of the team? So if you've got 10 people who build contract in your business, but 40 or 50% of your revenue is sat with three members of that team, that's going right. to, that's going to, that's going to bring the EBIT down, that's going to bring the multiple down from that perspective. So it will always depend. I also think as well, any multiplier is important but the business is also worth what someone's willing to pay for it so it's like when you go to buy, buy a house a house might be valued at a certain amount mm. if you want to pay more or less that's that you know beauty is in the eye of the holder right mm. so ultimately you need to apply a multiple if you're doing an mbo so you, you know management team are buying it out then you should really look at you know ebitda performance for the last 12 months because that's the reality if you're doing a trade sale, then you might look at forecasted EBITDA for the next six to 12 months because you're looking at the future value of the business from that side. There's loads of different things and there's much more qualified people than me out there. I find it interesting that we don't, there's not more merger acquisition, MBO deal talk in our mm. industry in general. And I also find it interesting that there aren't that many deals done every year because most agencies are owner managed. And although some of them have the ambition to do an event, they're normally profitable businesses, so they end up holding them, and some hold them for too long. Too long, yeah. Um, from that side, so depends on your business. Yeah, fair no, and I'll, I'll I think with, with a straight paying business, your multiple will always be lower, unless you're a Goliath and mm. you've got some, you know, recurring paying rev in there. Yeah. How did you structure the deal then? We did a deal that was based. So the other thing for me was I wanted, I wanted to go with the business first yep. of all. So I wanted to go into rethink, which meant that I also had to then negotiate on a job in the sense of, you know, what, where are the needs within your business? 
what is the future of Digital 51 within your group? At that point, the group had three businesses within it, Infinite Talent, Digital Gurus, Rethink Itself. Where will Digital 51 sit within there? So there were sort of three parts to the deal, if I'm being honest. One was like how you know how much you're going to pay for it and what's included in that price. So what was included was like the client relationships, the candidate data- database, the brand itself, all of the knowledge and everything that went with our product offering and, you know, some of what I'd like our secret sources, I like to think behind the scenes. So that's like the first part. The second part is what's going to happen to the brand moving forward. Is it going to get sunsetted? Is it going to remain as, as, as a legal entity? Who's going to own that legal entity? And then the last bit was what's happening with you, Simon, yourself in that perspective. The big things, bizarrely for me, were not the upfront price because it's sort of, it is what it is. You know, we'd been round that roundabout. The first roundabout had been really good for me. The second roundabout had been, it was still good, but it just wasn't as good as the first one. The second bit was, for me, was around the legal ownership of the business. And whilst I was super excited to be going into Rethink and and I am excited to be inside it, I didn't want to give up the legal ownership of Digital 51. And I wanted some caveats that if for whatever reason, this didn't pan out of the journey that we wanted it to, that I could get that business back. What I wasn't looking to do was sell my business, have nothing to do with it ever again. So really important factor for me was I actually want to caveat milestones for the first two years, which is what we did, that if this doesn't work and by work, we, you know, define success, then you have the option. I can take it with me and I can leave. And that was really important for me. And then the last bit was what's my job going to be? So why don't we, let's focus on that now then, what your job was going to be. Obviously, you told me when we were preparing for this, like I was like, what does Simon actually do within this organisation, within this group? And you broke it down like this, but why don't we talk a bit about what the you know overall strategy and plan was for yep. Simon to impact the Refrank group. But you said at the moment, if we were to split up in your weeks, like Monday, Tuesday, you're running a you know circa 50-person recruitment business under Digital Gurus and Infinite Brand. Wednesday, Thursday, you're involved in the marketer team and the functions around the RPO model, yep. right? And then you're also then, you know, now one of the five people that are leading a 200 plus people, you know, recruitment, business and group, you're back in the boardroom having those conversations and you are developing products and services and, you know, now thinking, right, how can we continue, you know, rethink strategy? Who could we be interested in buying? What companies do we need to be aware of? So merging acquisition strategies as well. Right. You just nailed it. <laughs> if anyone in the business is listening to this and wants to know what, you know, what do you yeah. do every week, Simon? Well, Hisham just nailed so it. So was that the initial plan? Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely So talk not. to us about, yeah, yeah what yeah. was like, you know, the second part of that deal. Yeah. Right, Simon, join us. Yeah. This is what we're thinking, which you obviously got excited about. Yeah. These things happen. These, obviously you're, you're engaged and you're excited with what you're doing, yeah. but what was the initial plan? This podcast is proudly sponsored by Vincherry. Today, I want to talk to you about the power of the recruitment operating system. Disjointed tech systems are painful for growing recruitment companies. Too much admin, bad data, and no visibility. It's holding back recruitment organizations. Meet Vincherry. Vincherry is the creator of the recruitment operating system, a modern operating system for recruitment and staffing agencies worldwide. This natively integrated tech platform syncs data and workflows across recruitment agencies, front, middle, and back offices. Start off with a suite of modules, a core CRM, ATS, advanced reporting and analytics, video interviewing, and more. That's just their core product. 
Vincherry also works with a pre-integrated access products to expand your tech capabilities. Link up your recruitment websites powered by Volcanic or cover screening and pay and bill with the fast track integration. It's time to unite front, middle and back offices on a single recruitment technology platform. Unleash growth without gravity. Let's go. Find out more on vincherry.io and because you listen to this podcast, you get a discount, check it out, enjoy the rest of the episode. So the initial plan was really the Infinite Talent brand didn't have a crossover with Digital 51 in that sense. They own their space, very different type of agency. However, Digital Gurus and Digital 51 don't just share a name. You know, lots of market synergies, product, Mm. creative technology. That is what DG was built on. You would definitely be fair to say, well, you've modelled large parts of Digital 51 on that. I have because I love that business, that brand. The pink in Digital 51 comes from the pink in DG. Mm. It was a homage to that. So, but they are heavily a contingent agency. Then you've got Rethink, which is an outsource provider, large-scale managed service on the contract side, large-scale RPO on the perm side, so like five, 6,000 perm hires a year type mm. scale. There was this really big gap in the middle between where one business ends and another one starts, and what fit nicely in there was Digital 51, this partnership offering, bridge the two worlds. So that, that was the original plan. Combined with that, you know, increase scale and sales velocity within the rethink group themselves you know acquire more logos more brands more rpo and managed service clients on the contract side and that again was my history from 10 plus years ago so that was the original sort of thinking combined with that i had some would say some success with marketing digital 51 over the time there was a head of marketing or there's a head of marketing in Rethink, but he reported to the CEO, the CEO by his own admission, if he's listening, is not a natural marketeer. So there was an opportunity for me to lead a marketing team on a scale that I'd just never done before. So Mm -hmm. really exciting from there. And that was the original pitch. The original pitch was our holes are here. This bridge between these two brilliant organizations, getting them to work together and also offering our client base and new client base, something in between, which was digital 51 Combined with that, if you can grow our existing portfolio and harness the power of marketing, you know, we've got half a million eyes on those brands mm. in terms of LinkedIn followers alone, but maximized ROI from that is is minimal. So it's like a, it was a brilliant opportunity. So the sell was, yeah, sit nicely between there, drive those partnership sales through Digital 51. So keep that entity. We do projects within the RPO business, but it didn't, didn't have an identity. So it was like put that project RPO, which is sort of sub 12 month deals, put them into Digital 51, give it a brand, give it an identity, bang, let's go. So that was the original plan. That was the original pitch. plan. That, that makes sense. So how did it go in reality then? What? <laughs> oh, so you said like what you find yourself doing yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. So, so now, how, so did now actually, how did it go yeah. in reality? What happened is the, I guess, you know, a 250 person organization, being completely honest, I'd forgotten the inner workings of those bigger, I, well, I'd, I'd sort of just got out of the rhythm of those bigger organizations. Been seven years since I'd worked in a business that size, lots of moving parts within there. And, you know, sort of end of March, start of April time, there was essentially the opportunity that we've got a need for uh, leadership across digital gurus and across infinite, very different needs. One needs hand on, hands on leadership and one just needs, you know, direction uh, maybe. Well, just work. They've got brilliant, couple of brilliant directors at the top of it. Just, just, to, help just, just to help them, yeah, yeah. Just to sort of, you know, keep them true and what have you from that side. But essentially, can you take a more hands-on role with the really leadership nice of our agency business, which was like, 
I'm not going to lie, it was a really exciting conversation, uh, bearing in mind my history with DG in particular, mm. my passion for that business and all that goes with it. But I was always nervous that it would come at a cost because they're consuming businesses, you know, 50 person agencies operating right in the heart of, you know, the spaces that operate in at the moment where the market is in general. I guess the opportunity to lead them comes about because of a bit of a change. So I was super excited, but I was worried about the impact it would have on the original plan, if I'm being honest, in terms of this is going to make Digital 51 take a backseat. Redundant. redundant is a harsh sorry, word, my sorry, friend. Sorry, yeah. but, no, uh, sorry. It's going to take a backseat. It's going to take a backseat. Yeah, sorry. How on earth? Sorry, sorry. I hope that stays in. How on earth do you market a brand as brilliant as Digital 51 is mm. against the beast that is DG, you know, DG's mm. a power brand in my opinion, you know, huge followers, mm. really loyal client and candidate base. Yeah. So I was worried that it would get lost in that. And then combined with that, it would drive me more towards contingent recruitment, which is fine. And that is who, if you cut me open, that's where my background mm. was, but my belief system has moved more towards partnership and productization, different ways. Productization, 100%. Yeah. And DG is brilliant. And I will always say it is. However, it hasn't productized, which is a mm. mistake in my opinion. And therefore mm. again, opportunity. Well, Mm. What better business to productize than digital gurus? Like what an amazing opportunity. Yeah. However, that takes time because are the team within that business used to selling in that way? Absolutely not. Are they up for it? Absolutely. But then you've got the the, the skills gap to go on that journey and all that goes with it, which selfishly, I thought that's going to take away my time from, from other things. Like integrating which, Digital 51 with. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, been the cost, I would say. How do you feel about the deal now? Bang, you've just hit me there. How do you feel about it? Uh, good. I, I, I feel good. I'd be lying if I didn't say that Digital 51 has got lost in the wash. Mm. There's, you know, well, I appreciate it, being honest with that. Yeah, every week someone will reach out to me and say, we miss some of your content. We miss, you know, mm. my feet. The best. Yeah, you did a great job of that. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm going to be snippeting that, by the way. The best outreach I've had in the last couple of weeks is, why is my feed not full of purple, pink and white anymore? Mm. And I'm like, that was on a Saturday morning that dropped. Yeah, that killed me big time. But I mean, what a moment, like how mm. good is that? So I would be lying if I said that Digital 51 hadn't kept its brand, our brand presence. It's not, you mm. know, from that perspective, I still believe it can. I still think that the basis of the original deal makes absolute sense. Mm. I think which might not happen as soon as you maybe anticipated. Well, I think what we need to have a think about now, you know, possibly oversharing a little bit is mm. I think the plan was never to sunset digital 51 because it was, it was good. It was a standalone offering or what have you. I think we need to have a think about the longer term objectives because if DG is going to seriously productize. Could and, you uh, incorporate? Yeah. yeah that makes should, sense should, that. should we incorporate in that way? And I appreciate you sharing that. I think, look, I, I think really like kudos to you because look, I speak to so many different recruitment businesses we're always talking to them about training, getting the most out of their people. And oftentimes recruitment owners are really good at getting in their own, in their own way yeah. and want to be the person that's still the top performer, bringing in the best clients, all that. And I think kudos to you in the sense of like, you've definitely had to have a lot of humility here to be like, I put a number on my baby that I've built. I've had to let people go that are part of the journey. Yeah. You're now obviously being asked to go, Simon, like, we need you to be a bit selfless here. Like we think you could have a great impact here. You're now yeah. maybe thinking about actually everything that I've worked towards with digital 51 productization, do we actually now just bring that under the, and roll that into to yeah. DG? And I think, yeah, a lot of people wouldn't do that. Yeah. Well, so I respect that. Well, thank you. I, sh I should also But we look at, I think what, obviously what you're able to do is you are take, you're being willing to zoom out 
And, yeah. you know, we're playing the long game here. And if you're zooming out going, you know what, if I do this now and in five years' time, this is what things look like, that fucking excites me and I'm, I'm happy to do that. So Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, being honest, I love Digital 51 and I, there's days I wake up and I miss it. Uh, I should be clear I wasn't the top performer either, you know. <laughs> you know, that was Adrienne on that hat long, long before me. So I do miss it in some respects. However, I am better in a bigger business than a smaller business. Mm. There's no denying. I've realised that myself. I feel more comfortable back in a bigger space, back in a bigger organisation. It depends where you are on your little journey, what you're trying to achieve, where mm. you are, you know, where you are in your, like, life. I'm, you know, I started later. I, I arguably should have done it 10 years ago. If I'd have done it 10 years ago would I have gone down this route? No, maybe I wouldn't. Or mm. maybe I would have stayed true to it for a little bit longer. But you look at the opportunity in front of you and the opportunity in front of me with Rethink was they were at a really interesting point. You know, they did an MBO themselves 12 months before. Really interesting journey for the next two or three years. Where do you want to put your chips? You yeah, know? exactly. And, 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 and I right, respect that. It's not right or wrong. I respect that. Yeah, yeah I massively respect that. So, right, last 10 minutes here then. Yes. Why don't we talk about, let's just get into the granular of maybe the lot. I don't know how recent it's been, The what you were just talking about, yeah. but... I think obviously a lot of people who listen to this will work in an agency recruitment business or own one, mm-hmm. probably do a lot of contingent, maybe they yeah. do some partnership retained or whatever. Curious, I was just getting your article up on around like why 2023 is a great year to be in recruitment, but I was just thinking, you're now going into this business, they said, Simon, really need your help. Yeah. We think you could be really well positioned here to help these brands. Let's just focus on DG because it sounds like that's one that's more hands-on. Yeah. What were the things that you wanted to get abreast of as quickly as possible of that business so yeah. you could know where you need to be impacting, thinking about, you know, what was the dashboard that you put together? It's like, right, I need to see what is our job to fill ratio? Yeah. How many clients are we <laughs> with? Like, what was that initial dashboard where, you know, you had to get a grasp or to go, right, this is what we need to be focusing on or this is where we're going to, Focus first. What did that initially look like? Because I think that'd be interesting. Yeah, for me, it's like I'm a big ratios fan in the sense of how do we make our money? Yeah. How do we deliver our NFI? How do we generate the revenue that we generate? What does that look like? How long does it take us to get on new roles and new projects? And then when we get them on, how do we convert them and fill them? So for me, what I wanted to understand is you can see a number on a spreadsheet, right? You can see the P&L last 12 months. This is what that looks like. It's gone up, it's gone down, it's whatever it might be. Like for me, I'm straight on the floor. I'm like, I walk in a million miles an hour. Uh, I just took a picture on the way round before I met you, which is like bullet, the, go the bulls in a china shop. And I'm like, I'm straight in bull in a china shop. So like straight in, what is beneath this revenue? How many jobs and how long does it take to fill them? And what's the fill rate and what's affecting the fill rate and how can we influence that? I... Oh, sort of love and hate ABC jobs, uh, okay. gold, silver, bronze, whatever you call it. I'm not uh, fucking interested in B and C. I'm all in on A and I sort of always have been. I don't understand why you'd want a C job. I don't mm. understand what client is sat there thinking, I hope I'm a C job. Yeah. You know, they're just not doing it. Tell them they're a C job and mm. then try and convince them to become an A job. And if they don't, then don't work with them type mm. thing. So for me, I was looking at the mix between when you've got a brand like DG, you know, they have people knocking on their door day in, day out. You know, we had 125 things come through the door last year of substantial value that didn't even get fully delivered on because of the outbound work that was going with it. So that's mm. like 125 opportunities of anything from one role through to 10 roles mm. that because of the mix in the history and what have you from there. So for me, it, it was stripping back what is underneath this NFI. How do we make that money in the sense of... You know, how do we convert those deals and, and and at what rate do we do them at? And I think that's where our opportunity sits because of the way the market's been. 
being honest, we have got a mix of ABC jobs. And I don't think an agency like DG, to be biased, should have C jobs. Mm. So what's the benefit? Or like putting any effort into C jobs, you mean? The thing is, you've just hit the nail on the head there, right? You're not going to put any effort into it. Then then don't have it on your board. Yeah. Don't devalue that organisation by letting them think, do you know what I hate is this term is, if someone comes along, I'll send them over. <laughs> who's, who's coming along? <laughs> That is such a fucking bus stop is that happening at? <laughs> what bus stop is that happening at? If uh, I'll tell you what, is this uh, JavaScript developer walks past, I'm going to whiz him or her your way. Wait, so you're, you're saying when a client says that? <laughs> no, a consultant would say it to a client. Wouldn't they? Why I don't understand is why a client... Oh, right. So why does a client... Like, yeah, okay, Simon, sounds good. Like, if if yeah. I find someone, yeah, I'll ping yeah, them over. Yeah, sounds good. Them. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to... Why does any organisation hear the words? Hisham, I'm not going to actively work on that, but if someone comes across my desk, I'm going to whiz him your way. Fuck off. <laughs> no, do yeah. not do that. And to be to the hiring organisations, no, don't accept that because mm. there will be other recruiters out there who will be like, yeah, I would love the challenge of going to fill that for you. It's why it's why we created the eight-week guarantee at Digital 51 is- I really like that. We're going to go and find it for you. You know, we didn't have a massive database to sell against in terms of, you know, I hate that sell. We've got 200,000 people on our database. Mm. So how many are looking for work right now? How many mm. are you speaking to every week? Everything we did was sort of, sort of headhunt. Mm. You know, tell us what you want and we'll go and find people who fit that bill for you. So under that lens, that's why I don't like ABC jobs from that mm. side. So to get under the crooks of the business, you need to take that NFI number and you need to split it down. How many placements does that represent? At mm. what average placement fee? And what's the conversion rate? That's where I start then. What's top of mind right now in, in order for you to positively influence things? Two things we need to do. We need to productize definitely because our offering is too broad and it is too contingent in my opinion. And then secondly, we need to use more modern tactics. You know, I famously said to you, we built a over a million pounds in uh, Digital 51 without ever making a BD call. That's because we were using modern tactics in the mm. background. Really sophisticated outreach, content-led outreach, automation in that outreach, tech and people combined, absolutely. doesn't need to be one or the other. It, in fact, it shouldn't be one or the other, right, but if sure. you put the two together, that is strong. And, you know, I've been in the industry for long enough to say that historically we hated tech. We would always be like, the robots are never going to take our role or whatever. Whereas right now the industry is so open to tech but we don't want to go the other way i think there's this balance so within digital gurus again the team are doing too much of the heavy lifting where mm. tech could help them that doesn't mean we need less people what that means is we can generate more opportunity out more out of each person by using the tech yeah so productization and yeah tech. thinking about your overall business development strategy and, and what that needs to look like yeah and i think I just think that just productizing in general, I was this morning before I came to meet you, I was on the RPO side of the business and we, we've a really cool idea of a product there that we're going to test in the next mm. seven days about a different way of how you can buy that type of service, which historically has been known for a really long sales cycle and what mm. have you. And we're going to flip it right on its head and make it like really easy to buy, really quick to buy, really easy to access. Makes sense. Um, just like free trials, free recruitment stuff trials. Like that. I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, just Have you like read? Um, like are you do you read books? Yes, I do read books. Thank you for that. No, nah, it's just it's like not everyone's a reader. <laughs> yeah, reader. I, I'm, a, I'm a reader. Have you, yeah. have you come across Alex Hormozzi yet? I have not. No. So you should read the book called Hundred Million Dollar Offers. Right, okay. People listening to this should read that. The reason why I bring that up, it's really impacted my business, and I think. The way that you're talking about there, it's actually a really missed opportunity. Like, don't fall into the trap of like, we've always done things this way. No. Like how, I love that eight-week guarantee and mm. that that's something that you 
may have been insp- uh, like if you were to read this book that might have inspired something like that because like there's so much power in a fucking great offer yeah, that you was. just feel stupid to say no to yeah. and like there's so much that you can experiment with do like what I loved about that eight week guarantee is like you're saying look you're paying up front but if we don't fill it you get that money back 100% like you're committed but at the same time there's no risk yeah and like there's like with that productization, it doesn't mean straight away you put it in the buckets of contingent, retained, or whatever. Like you can, you know, you can offer up your services however you want to. Yeah, definitely. And like you can have a lot of fun with that. And if you center it around when we speak to clients, what are the main challenges and problems that you know they want us to help them with? Yeah. What do we always find ourselves helping them with? Is it growing their brand? Is it you know interview processes? Is it data analytics? Can we package that all up to say this is Digital Gurus X products? It's called this. This is yeah. what you get for it. That's that, yeah, like that's just such a missed opportunity for yeah. people. I love it. I think it's such an exciting. That's why I put that post mm. out. What, what I didn't say is the recruitment market is fucking brilliant right now. And I've had mm. a few people reach out to me and say that. I didn't say the recruitment market was brilliant right now. I mean, in my opinion, it is, depending on what you recruit for. What I said is a brilliant time to be in our industry, mm. which it is because innovation has something that the industry has historically struggled with. Mm. There are still consultants out there now building their desk off spec, right? Mm. Spec has been around before email. You know, people will tell you the stories about specking via mailer, as in physically putting stuff in the post and sending mm. it out to people. I, I don't get me wrong, that's good, right? That's okay. But do I believe that specking is the right way to completely build out a desk? No, I don't. So I think you productize it in the things that you believe in. And we at Digital 51, for example, it was like a cult in some respects. We believed in what we were doing. And therefore, if a client didn't want to work with us or a business didn't want to partner with us, we were like, great, you're not right for us anyway. And at the same time, we turned business away. We turned down £72,000 worth of business within the first 12 weeks of opening because it was, we had everyone on 14-day payment terms, privately owned, privately funded business, as in me. And I had a business saying, we're on 60-day payment terms. I'm like, yeah, thanks for that. No, I'm all right. We'll just move on. And they were like, what are you? And they said to me, you're really going to walk away from £72,000 worth of potential business. Yeah, he's not going to pay me. Because 60 days actually means fucking 120 Yeah, and it's like, no, we're not going to do that in that sense. It's not who we were. I mean, it did help that they weren't in core market for us. So it was about staying true to, this is who we are, Mm. right? We do these things. And we had a couple of wobbles along the way where we would get things that come in. But once you're a partner... I had a client ring me. We didn't do finance at all. My first desk 17 years ago was part qual finance. So I know it from 17 years ago. I had an agency, PR agency, London's hottest in my opinion. The uh, FD rang me and she was like, I need a finance assistant. You just know us inside out. Is there any chance you know anyone? And I said to her, I know that job. So let me pop round. Let's have coffee tomorrow. Tell me what you want. I'll go and find it for you. Obviously didn't plast. I just knew how to find that person. Didn't plaster it all over LinkedIn. That's what we were doing. So yeah, we came out of lane a little bit, but only with partners. So we productized, we believed in what we were doing and then we just banged that jump relentlessly. And if people didn't believe in it, we didn't work with them. That's, you know, from that side. So now I think it's a really exciting time because you can productize in that way. And, it's never been easier to market because of the tools that are available out there to do it. So if you're not in an environment where you can do that type of innovation or the organization you work for isn't innovating in that way, then, mm. I, you, you know, people will say to me, is Perm going to die? Is this the end of Perm? Are we on the long run? Permanent recruitment's never going to die as a, as a concept because permanent work's never going to die, but it's definitely evolving. So therefore, if it is evolving, we need to think about how people buy that service mm. and why are they buying that service? 
and then tailor your solution to that. To that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think ju- just to add my two pence on that, what I really like about that, when you actually have that approach, you saying that we really believed in it, when you actually take the time to equip your team with what your actual product and service is and why it is what it is, because our clients ask for this and we help them with that, it actually gives everyone a lot more confidence. Yeah. I mean, I used to present it to them. Into the product. Yeah, I would present it. I presented to the business. So we, like Adrian and I, we would hone and change our pitch all the time. And we would either pitch it to each other or pitch it to the business. You know, on day one, I did a welcome meet and I pitched the products and I, and I built the presentation around, right, I'm going to pitch you what this Mm. is and why we do it now. Um, And the guys were like, love it. And then we did that continuously Mm. one thing i wish we did more of recruiting in product they do they do a thing called a product teardown so they they take a product they'll get the product owners product managers developers designers they'll get them around the table and they'll tear down the product in terms of right what are all the holes in it and what you know what could we do differently we should have done that because there was a couple of points in the first year where we were cutting through but we definitely could have cut through it better if we'd have looked at our own sort of blind spots. There's sometimes there's a fine line, isn't there, between self-belief and that arrogance in terms of there are other ways you can do things. And I think we'd have, if we'd have had a bit more of a teardown mentality or if we'd have brought some other people in and said, right, we're going to pitch you, mm. you know. Give us your feedback. Yeah, give us your feedback for it. I'll never forget the first time I pitched to a client, AD was sat in the back of the room. The client clearly was not having it. They were like, no, it's not us. And they weren't buying it. And I started to chase the sell, you know, just because you believe in it doesn't mean you don't want it. And also, you know, I wanted the revenue and uh, there's no denying it. And I put the phone down and she was like, they're not fucking buying that. And I was like, no. And she was like, why did you chase it in that way? And what happened is the client raised something that I hadn't thought of. There you go. So we never pitched it in that way ever again. I went home that night, rebuilt the pack, redid it, and we never pitched it in that way again. But that was like the one that got away. I think if we'd have done a bit more AB, we AB tested. Mm. definitely in the second second year mm. we didn't ab test at the start at the start it was all we did everything live yeah simon been a pleasure thank, thank you, you so much. thank you man take care thank you so much for listening to this week's episode i hope there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away as you'll know i'm your host here of the recruitment mentors podcast but i'm also the founder of recruitment mentors We're an online subscription-based learning and education platform. We're on a mission to help thousands of recruiters achieve their professional goals and successfully progress their careers through modern and engaging online learning. If you're a recruitment business owner listening to this, there's a good chance that you value self-development, personal development. You're trying to develop a culture of continuous improvement. But we've partnered with a number of grown recruitment companies who were struggling to understand how they can invest more in their people, how they can upskill them more quickly without spending more time, without having to spend thousands of pounds of external trainers. And we've ended up being a really great fit, modern fit for recruitment teams. We can ultimately help you get more out of your teams by giving your people access to modern and engaging online learning, which they can access on demand. The thing that's really cool about what we're doing at Recruitment Mentors is that all of the people that your teams are able to learn from and the people that are delivering the learning content are people that are in role right now. They're billing, they're actively facing the challenges that your teams are, and a lot of the time they're amongst the top performers within their companies, which means your teams are gonna be way more confident to learn and spend time on their learning when they know they're learning from people that are doing it right now, have been there and done it, 
And there's nothing worse than feeling like training is not relevant and not current. The best place to find out more about Recruitment Mentors and if we can help you accelerate your team's performance is uh, send me a message on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn directly, and I'd love to connect with you and, and find out if we can help you get more out of your people.